Hello and welcome to the Technicast. In today's episode, we continue our theme on affect with our guest, queer theorist and cultural geographer Joe Jukes. Their work asks whether the countryside can be thought of as a queer place and how living in West Country Somerset feels for queer people. Joe's piece is about rurality as an affect, about the revelatory power of double takes, about how surprise can supplant the sublime, and about Little Britain's David Thomas. Can you do something for me? Close your eyes. I want you to think about the countryside. So take a breath and find a picture of it in your mind. When I say rural, what do you see? What colours are most prominent? What kinds of landscapes are in view? What kind of land uses? What can you hear? The hum of a bypass? Sheep bleating? Or just the whip of the wind in your ears? Have you been here before? Have you not been here before? Are there people here? Or buildings? What can you smell? What time of year is it? And please don't tell me it's raining again. Okay, uh, you can open your eyes now. My rural is rolling hills, and yes, it is often raining. My rural is West Country Somerset, grand vistas of lush green and Glastonbury Tor in the distance. In the morning it's always foggy, and more often than not it stinks of manure, which any optimist will tell you amounts to the same thing as good, clean, fresh country air. My rural is country lanes and close calls. It's a one-pint limit if I'm driving and a sleepover in the next village if I'm not. It's knowing that the village pub's landlord is gay because my mum said, in the pub as well, here, it'll be your friend Joe. But I'm curious, is that the same as your rural? If I put my Wurzel hat on, I can boast about the West Country's magic, its mythic quality, but to say that it's rural is to acknowledge that it's probably a different kind of rural to Yorkshire Moors, Welsh Valleys, Scottish Highlands and Kentish Gardens. It amounts to say that it feels different here. I've been learning that rural means a lot. It means many things to many people, but it also tells us very little about a lot of spaces. It's a term altogether beguiling because as soon as you think you have a handle on it, you'll find numerous contradictions and contestations in the term. Raymond Williams, in his influential text of 1973, The Country and the City, observed that in Britain, the country has since at least the 16th century been juxtaposed with this thing called the city. The story goes that the city, being industrialised and becoming modern, progressed beyond the country, which had been left pristine, traditional, natural and untainted behind it. But being raised in a rural Welsh town himself, Williams criticised this uncomplicated and unspoilt framing of rural areas, especially for the ways in which they overlooked things like daily hardships and animosities or the everyday joys of country life, not to mention the fact that the country itself has industrialised in response to the need to feed a newly urbanised workforce. Putting the rural behind the urban in this way, he said, made the countryside into a myth that functioned as a kind of evidential memory to British civilization. The contrast between country and city has come to structure much of our imaginary social and political lives. If the rural is counterposed with urban industrialisation and development, then it can very easily acquire a reputation as the beating historic heart of the nation as a whole. 
It provides this kind of idyllic landscape that we Brits carry with us around the world, watermarked in the pages of our passports. This, along with the association of the countryside with certain images of rustic, simple and traditional communities, imbues our feeling of the rural as something worthy of preservation, with landscapes to be protected from encroachment. This conservatism comes to be understood not just as something environmental, but social too. Rural areas, whether thought through in association with the working middle or upper class, seem to be full of social conservatism, which then goes on to explain the absence or marginalisation of LGBTQ plus communities, people of colour, and Gypsy Roma and Traveller communities from the quaint picture of village life, even if these communities have always been present in the British countryside. Acknowledging this imaginary geography, the split between the rural and the urban and their association with different kinds of people, politics and preserves, helps us to understand how spaces and how we feel about them have a co-constructive relationship with power. Co-constructive this relationship may be, but consistent it is probably not. Using filmic examples, one could compare the titillating prudishness of the Napoli W.I. in the 2003 film Calendar Girls with the oozing Italian eroticism of 2017's Call Me By Your Name. The open wilderness of Ang Lee's Brokeback Mountain could be contrasted with the enclosed domestic farm life depicted in Francis Lee's God's Own Country, my favourite film. Even the tense horrors of Ari Aster's Midsommar rub up oddly against the comedic banalities of Daffith Thomas's neighbours in Little Britain's Welsh town of Llandui Brevi. These are all rural, albeit fictional rurals, but they all move us in different ways, through the atmospheres that they create and have been created from. They arouse and excite, or in other words, they affect us. Affect theory describes a way of understanding political and cultural life through the individual and collective experience of mood and feeling. It asks what affects us, what our actions affect or set in motion, and how affects can be more generally generated, structured and manipulated through power. Attending to how spaces affect us humans in a social material sense can help us to understand why we become so attached to, defensive of, or even repulsed by certain kinds of rural. Or why, oftentimes when I'm telling people about my research, which concerns rural queer experiences here in Somerset, I'm often met with a response that reroutes quite unhelpfully back through Daffith Thomas. Something like, oh, so it's the whole only gay in the village thing then, right, right, I got it. No, there is no gay scene in Tlandui Brevi. Just me. Really? Yes, I am the only gay in the village. Because the thing is, there isn't ever just one gay in the village. And even if that were the case, the village itself might be altogether queer, as in something non-normative, strange or vaguely defined. In fact, the tragic comedy that Daffith serves lies not in the fact that he's the only gay in the village some kind of tragically flamboyant outsider, but rather that literally everyone in Llandui Brevi is in some way queer, which provides a surprisingly helpful lens with which to evaluate what kinds of queer are rural and what kinds of rural are queer. All right then, if you're gay, who played Dorothy in the film The Wizard of Oz? Judy Garland. <laughs> How do you know that? All right then, this'll get you. Who is the gay character and are you being served? Mr Humphreys. <laughs> Was it? Because we don't typically think of the countryside as a very queer place, and we might not at first imagine LGBTQ plus people living in the countryside, or at least living there happily. This spacing of queer joy as something anti-rural, or something urban, and the locating of homophobia, intolerance and even violence as something that happens out in the sticks, is a phenomenon that Jack Halberstam has described as metronormativity. 
Against this, the mere presence of queer folk in rural areas can come as a surprise, and indeed the enthusiastic uptake of queerness in some parts of the countryside has surprised us all in turn. I'm thinking about Hebden Bridge, the so-called lesbian capital of Britain, up in West Yorkshire with a population of just 4,500 people. And I'm also thinking about Glastonbury just down the road from me, a site of pilgrimage, magic and alternative ways of life, full of strange and surprising sights and smells. I'd like to offer this simple observation though, that rural life is surprising. And I mean this generally, but especially so in a queer context. Rural environments don't promise, but they always seem to deliver queer encounters. And here's one example. I lifted this fragment from my hometown, Midsummer Norton, using the online collaborative mapping project Queering the Map. In Queering the Map, users share their own memories and experiences by tagging places on an interactive map of the world, creating a kind of community cartographic archive. This user in northeast Somerset, presumably, reflected on their experience at the annual summer Mardi Gras festival. They say, lost my virginity drunk on cider during Mardi Gras. Is there anything more Norton? And what I love about this entry is the way that local monikers of place, so things like cider, Mardi Gras, and the colloquial town name Norton, are all folded into this kind of surprising sexual experience. In fact, they're pretty much inseparable from it. It's definitely a kind of West Country queerness in my eyes. So this entry is funny, and I think it's probably intentionally funny. It hints towards a surprising happenstance, the encounter, we don't know if it was planned or spontaneous, but we do know that it happened at a park a stone throws away from the high street. And it also surprised me on first reading with its candidness. Midsummer Norton, by the way, surprised the region in 2016 when it hosted Somerset's smallest pride festival, years before such celebrations came to Bath, Taunton and other larger towns. Can we say that surprise pops up where queer and rural intersect? I like to think so, and I like to think a little bit more about surprise as an affect now, something that circulates through space and that moves us at particular moments and in particular ways. I want to ask how surprise happens and what surprise does. Surprise can be modelled around the double take, the act of looking and then looking again. We double take when we cast our eye over a scene or we hear a passing comment, and then only after that moment has passed we register something that wasn't quite right there. Maybe a friend slipped something salacious into their story that we weren't expecting, or maybe something is happening a bit far off in the distance that ought not to be happening in a place like this. The head whips around to gobble it up with a certain kind of quickness. And when one double takes, the first look is normally banal and disinterested but it's the second glance that is simultaneously fervent and cautious. It's rushed and almost involuntary, but it's also saucy and juicy. The double take compares two views on a scene, first viewed as empty and normal, and again as a secret space within a space, something that's been discovered, full of meaning. And surprise affects this gesture of comparison. It forces us to restage something or to look at it again. And it's the returning of this gaze, the almost unconscious choice to take a second take, that ruptures how we might normally consider space to be ordered. When normality is ruptured, we might notice that queerness is already at work. In Lewis Carroll's Wonderland, Alice verbalises her surprise through the line, how queer everything is today. By reactively turning once again to inspect space, we admit and recognise the presence of disorder around us. We might realise for a split second that disorder is actually fugitive in all the spaces we inhabit. It's just that in the double take, when we're surprised, we let it affect us. We let it in and we risk being moved. In the moment of unexpectedness, the thing that we thought we saw or heard changed. And that realisation could also change us.
So back in Wonderland, for example, Alice, surprised, continues. She says, let me think, was I the same as when I got up this morning? I almost think I can remember feeling a little different. But if I'm not the same, the next question is, who in the world am I? I like to think of queer potential as constantly circulating around or beneath the ordered spaces of rural life. In surprise, this kind of queer potential bursts through in the moment we whip our heads back round in the double take. The first look, it does recognise the presence of queer, albeit subconsciously. And then it's the second take that not only confirms that yes, it was there all along, but it also performs that presence, allowing one to be affected by it. The second take makes queer real, not hidden. And so, the double take for me is this funny gesture of rural life that we can model around the feeling of being surprised. And you can really think of it anywhere. You might see it in your neighbour twitching their curtain when you bring your boyfriend home, driving past a lay-by and thinking you spied someone cruising, or in the squeak of Daffith's PVC jumpsuit. When one is surprised, one experiences a raised heartbeat, a flush of endorphins, a smile, or a widening of the eyes. Feminist theorist Sarah Ahmed emphasises that we feel affects on and through the surfaces of our bodies. The most important bodily response for me, I think, is the churn of the stomach. That kind of jolt that we receive from surprise is its evidence. It affects or brings about a different emotional understanding of rural. The churn of the stomach invigorates both my body, but also my geography from the inside out. It helps us recognise our own surprise and excitement, and upon being recognised, it's surprise for me that keeps rural unpredictable, live, and open to new possibilities which is enough to say that it's surprise that keeps me here. Surprise reminds us that queer potential is all around, and it's released in the gesture of the double take. But surprise also requires repetition. I mean, we look and then we look again, there's a repeat, but we must also allow ourselves to be surprised regularly if our understanding of where or who in the world we are is going to change and deepen. For me in the countryside, it's queerness that helps me see myself and my home again and anew. In fact, I find myself hoping to be surprised quite regularly in my countryside life. And every now and again, it does manage to find me. But I wonder how you felt when picturing your rural. What found you? On top of the sights, sounds and smells that you imagined, how did you feel? We might then ask, why did you feel that way? Where did those feelings come from? And where might such emotions take you next? Welcome to the Technicast, Joe. It's such a pleasure to have you. And where are you joining us from today? So, as you might imagine, I'm joining you from Somerset. And it's a pleasure to be here. I think I said in my recording that it's been raining a lot recently. And it continues to rain. <laughs> I was in London last weekend, lovely and dry, and then I just roll back into the misty hills. It sounds fantastic for a winter's day, I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm in the spirit. And we've got the Christmas tree in now. Wonderful. But the reason I ask, obviously, is not just to pry and to do a bit of small talk. It's because you speak of your rural and you speak of West Country Somerset. And that made me think about boundaries and definition, which is literally drawing boundaries place or a specific place is this sort of confluence between landscape, geography, imagined geography, map geography, and of personal memory, of lived experience, but also of this cultural element. So where do boundaries sit in your work? I think this question is really interesting because 
when I was growing up, and I've always grown up in this area, I never thought that I lived rurally. I lived in a town of 10,000 people, and it was only having moved away that, and telling people about how I grew up and where and the experiences I had, that I came to realise that my town was not urban. And so this kind of retrospective glance at my life in the past helps me conceptualise where I had been rather than, you know, where I was at the time. And this way that returning to Somerset is a really pleasurable experience for me now, but had not always been that way, um, you know, in previous years, speaks to how entrances and exits can change the places that we have been in the past. And therefore, when we go back to them, it also can feel really different, right? So do you feel that sort of like leaving highlights the boundary or like shows you that there is such a thing as maybe an objective or a shared place identity? I mean, you also say in your podcast, or you, you mentioned this, this person on the queer mapping app saying it's typical Norton. So what does that mean? You know, something typically Norton. I think especially in cultural geography, there's a real tendency to avoid thinking about places as bounded. But of course, as, as your question highlights, that doesn't mean that boundary thinking um, is not important. And I think for me, it's the way that we can feel in a place or we feel of a place and certain places can have resonances that we find those moments in which like a boundary becomes real. I think in the recording, I talked about how affects can create a sense of surface. And although I probably don't think that the rural or even necessarily Somerset is a bounded concept. Somerset is bounded by lines of county, but actually how it feels is way more fluid. Equally, the surfaces of Somerset come forward in something like cider. You know, I could be in Brighton on a hot summer's day ordering a Thatcher's and all of a sudden there is a kind of like Somerset resonance in the condensation on this glass that um, maybe is more powerful for me than another person. That's links us to affect, I suppose, and the Thatcher's sort of gives a feeling for you and that, that sort of takes you back, I imagine. Yeah. Right, I was just going to start linking this idea of, of boundaries and, and metronormativity that, that you bring in, which is um, Halberstam, I think. Can we then see queerness as a transgression of boundaries? And if that's the case, then does queerness require this notion of normality, of normativity? And then how do we define that? Sure. So I think that in queer theory, the norm is of, of central importance, uh, especially if you read the writings of, for example, Michael Warner, who of course wrote this whole book, The Trouble with Normal. And when thought through politics of liberation or of resistance, a proximity to punk, like queer politics as it emerged in the 90s really was about both the rejection of norm and a kind of oppositional resistance to normative politics, right? But I'm equally as fascinated by queer theories that are less about resisting the norm, but playing with possibility. And of course, when Sedgwick says that queer is this open mesh of possibilities, so kind of questions of new beginnings, of doing things differently, the question is less about norm, but more about alternatives. And I think that that's a really subtle but helpful shift in how we can approach questions like metronormativity. Because if we recognise that maybe we expect queer to happen in the city by looking for alternatives rather than expectations, new questions can emerge 
and we kind of get less an oppositional and more a playful approach to space. So in that regard, how does the rural differ from the city then? I think uh, the, the question of expectation is probably what resonates the most for me now, but this is a question that I keep working through in my PhD, is that in the city I expect to be surprised, right? Or I expect and have experienced um, multitudes uh, in terms of the senses, so things like noises and smells, soundscapes and um, sights to see. Whereas in the countryside, I think because of the way that it has been discursively constituted, we expect peacefulness, staticness, and frankly, boredom. <laughs> <laughs> and the effective shaping of space and the sensations that the urban and the rural are supposed to give us are never like exhaustive, are they? So when I think about metronormativity, it's this kind of spacing of sense, but the experiences that I've had in my life and the, the things that I enjoy about rural living go against this idea of, of metronormativity in some ways. But at the same time, that departure or that resistance doesn't feel as like politically charged. It feels playfully charged, I suppose. There, there's less of a stake in the game. I really enjoyed your take on what kept you in the country because you said it's, it's surprise that keeps me here, which I think is such a lovely and positive way to look at the rural. But then that, that made me think, because I live in the city, I live in London, and you say we expect to be surprised in the city. So I was wondering, do I expect to be surprised or am I sort of becoming a bit numb to surprise because there's so much here that it just nothing shocks me anymore, you know, like to put it in that old phrase. Um, what do you think about that in terms of the city and rural? Do we really expect to be surprised in the city or is it almost that there's no no one normal or at least not in the, in the same way as there might be in the more rural areas that can be transgressed? Mm. Maybe it's the sense that we can become accustomed to different rhythms, right? So the, the city in my eyes is this kind of place of tempo and fastness and kind of um, lots of overlapping rhythms and excitements. Whereas um, perhaps because in the countryside we find ourselves more isolated, maybe there's, there's this one kind of tempo, um, this turning over of space from day to day or the changing of the seasons become a little bit more present, right? When you have to drive past hundreds of trees to get to work or the shop or something. And in that context where maybe the rhythms of space are less competitive or bombarding, um, you can pick up on on difference in maybe a more present way. You use the word like transgression, and I think that that echoes queerness quite a lot, right? So it invoke things we've talked about already, crossing boundaries or departing from norm. Transgression can be maybe more noticeable in countryside space. But I would say whilst it's whilst it could be transgressive or noticeable the delightful thing about rural queerness that i'm kind of experiencing whilst conducting an ethnography is that it is also quite banal in itself as well and rather than the metronormative assertion that queerness is something radically disruptive and that threatens the countryside in many ways actually one of the most surprising things that's come out of the research is how accommodative the countryside can be of these queer transgressions, especially because they operate so closely to a rural logic. That's really nice. And it brings me back to your notion of, of surprise and how you describe it with this double take that at first, the first you sort of 
the expected, the banal, and the second makes you realize how it made you feel. And that's, I think your line was um, something along the lines of, it's the jolt and the, the feeling that is its own evidence for surprise, which I really loved. I mean, it's, it's such a great way to put it. And, and that, I think, is something that we can all take into our places, you know, be it the city or the rural. It's this sort of understanding our affect. So is this a way, do you think, of marking our own boundaries, you know, understanding the way it makes us feel? Yeah, I, I think the way that I've been sort of thinking about surprise as this jolt or this looking again, um, I think helps to, in a way, queer that sense of boundary and emphasise the fact that boundaries can feel really secure. And in a split second, they, they come apart because what you thought you knew about a given space, in this sense, the rural, is completely undermined by something that was always there, but that maybe did not constitute the boundary you thought bounded you or bounded a given space. And I think this notion of surprise has in many ways come through my aversion to thinking about feelings of majesty or awe that come with the sublime. Because when I began doing rural studies, if, if we can call it that, people were saying, oh, isn't it wonderful to look across like a majestic rolling valley and feel this sense of wonderment? And to me, that felt like a quite an unqueer way to approach the countryside, to like climb to the top of a hill and say how wonderful it is. But against the sublime, if we think surprise, then actually things are coming from beneath and we didn't go out looking for them, but they found us. And all of a sudden, the geography that we explore becomes a little bit more surprising or <laughs> enjoyable and things like that. Well, that's a great note to, to finish this on, I think. But um, I was wondering just very briefly on a more practical point, because listening to your recording, you have this ability to present theory in such an approachable and engaging way. So what's your secret, Joe? <laughs> I, what I find is often I just really root through sprawling pop culture references. I mean, I truly feel haunted by Daffith Thomas uh, when I... And so I think that because when I look at popular geographies or cultural geographies, um, so much of our imagination and the way that we approach space or expect to approach space is from, from what has gone before, the way that spaces have been performed. So it's quite nice to take something that can be familiar and turn it around in a way to surprise others. You know, that process can help people unlearn and think again. And I, I enjoy that. <laughs> I enjoy it too. I mean, I really enjoy listening to your piece, Joe, so thank you very much. And maybe we can all take away that surprise can be both an engagement with place and the way we write about it. Oh, thank you so much. This has been such a brilliant chat. Thanks for coming on the Technicast, Joe, and Merry Christmas. Likewise. Joe Dukes is a Techne-funded PhD researcher at the Centre for Transforming Sexuality and Gender at the University of Brighton where their study involves a creative ethnography of LGBT plus Somerset. Joe has curated for the Museum of English Rural Life, written for CPRE, the Countryside Charity, and co-convenes the upcoming conference, Outsiders 2022. That's all for this episode of the Technicast. In January, our theme will be re-enchantment alongside the Techne Congress. You can register for our session at the Congress via Techne's website, and we hope you'll tune in on the 10th of January for our special episode. 
Until then, happy holidays and have a wonderful start to the new year. Thanks to our guest Joe Dukes for their contribution. Thanks also to Techne for their support. And on behalf of the whole Technicast team, Polly Hember, Felix Klutzen and myself, Julien Klein, thank you for listening.